Welcome to the TAGT Podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT Podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT Annual Conference, Gift Ed 22. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today we're chatting with educational psychologist, author, and speaker, Christine Fonseca. Using her experience consulting and coaching, Christine brings her expertise to psychology today, authoring the parenting blog, Parenting for a New Generation. She has written articles for parents.com, Johnson & Johnson, and Justine Magazine. Her most popular titles include Emotional Intensity and Gifted Students, and I'm Not Just Gifted. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's so nice to be here. Yes, we, we are glad you're here. You're a big part of Gift Ed 22 this year, and we're excited to just get to know you a little bit better here. Awesome. I uh, love being here. Good. That's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> At Gift Ed 22, you are presenting on a concept that may really hit home for some, especially during this unique time. Uh, balancing emotions, emotional distress, and so much more. Let, let's start with that. Why do you think this uh, topic and this work really resonates, uh, especially with educators within TAGT? Well, um, it's been a rough few years, and I think both the adults in the educational world and the kids in the educational world are feeling the strain of that. And so as I've kind of toured around California and toured around the country speaking about different things, what keeps coming up is that need to increase resiliency, build resiliency, what happened to our kids. We had some kids who really thrived over the last few years, but we have lots and lots of kids in emotional distress, avoiding school, avoiding class, avoiding work, and just really stressed out. And so I spent some time over the summer trying to um, put together some new ideas on this based on my work and the work um, of others. And yeah, that's so I'm bringing it here today. That's awesome. Let, let's talk about a few of those ideas. And, and, and I think you're right. I think that message of people going through kids and, and I'm sure educators and the emotional distress and, and how challenging some things are. Could you give us maybe a sneak peek of some of the things that you'll be talking about here? Yeah, I'm going to talk a lot about our gifted population in particular and this idea that our EQ or our emotional intelligence really correlates or kind of determines how much of that IQ we get to use. Mm. And so our brightest of kids, that's all well and good, but if they're not okay emotionally, you're never going to see some of that. And there's really good research on that to kind of indicate the degree to which IQ numbers or functional IQ drops when we're in emotional distress. And so my presentation is really going to focus on strategies that teachers can take back to the classroom, both for themselves, that's the first part, right? Mm -hmm. As well as for kids on how to build resiliency and how to use the day in, day out work that we do with kids to just foster an environment that is more connected and that really enables kids to practice some of those healthy thinking skills and some of those coping skills and finding meaning in their life, all of which is going to improve their resiliency, stronger resiliency, better performance. It all goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that there's there are students out there with that high IQ, with that high academic potential or, or that high ability 
that we're not able to tap into that because they're kind of that emotional intelligence, that yes. emotional needs are not being addressed. Yeah. As an educational psych and a school psychologist who works in schools, I see firsthand kind of the impact. And so, you know, mm. I spend the better part of my week given a bunch of IQ tests to kids. And whether they're average functioning kids or gifted kids, one of the things I saw just overwhelmingly over the last two years it was a significant drop in those IQ numbers. Mm. And these are kids who I've tested previously, and those numbers are supposed to be pretty static, and they weren't. Mm. And that really caused me to kind of look into why. And it's really a factor of what's happening in their brain when our brains are kind of on fire from stress and what that does to our ability to tap into our innate skills. And I don't know how you're feeling, but I don't think the world is floating in so much talent that's regularly being utilized that mm. we could just squander you know, squander some of that ability away. And so if our kids aren't able to come to school and function in a way that's consistent with their potential, there's work that we have to do then to help them be able to do that. So is that partially the work that you're asking them to do in the first place or the maybe the process in which they are working on those things to develop it. Yeah, it's it's taking what they do, right? Because these mm -hmm. are well-trained educators. So taking what they do and then taking it to the next level mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and building that into their classroom very organically. So it's not more. No right. educator needs more to do. They don't need more on that plate. They need to be able to utilize what they're doing in a way that's more intentional so that our gifted kids can really benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And I know you, uh, one of the things that really shines through in your bio and, and, and reading up on you to prepare for this podcast is you've got a lot of uh, gifted people in your life, so to speak, or, or, or people with potential there, right? Uh, have you seen this play out in their lives? Have oh, you seen it play out in your life? Absolutely. So even even in my own life, so we'll take me because, you know, why not? Sure. Um, You're here. I, I'm here, exactly. <laughs> I absolutely noticed um, a decline in my executive functioning over the last couple of years. And so mm. I my ability to attend to things for extended period of time, oh my gosh, that kind of went out the window the last couple of years. And I regularly play those luminosity games because I'm just, I'm a total geek and I just like <laughs> build up my brain and all that. And I can see it in the numbers. Like it was absolutely, I had some data to support this vibe that I had that I just wasn't attending as well. And so I've noticed with my own self the ease with which I become a little bit more dysregulated. It's better now that mm. we're a little bit further out and I've been aware of it a little longer. I've been able to do my own self-care practice. Um, but prior to that, I could really, really see the degree to which little things got my regulation skills a little off balance. Mm. And then I have two adult gifted children and a gifted husband. So at any given time, we're a pretty intense household. And, um, you know, as they moved out on their own in the midst of everything that was going on in the world, because it all hit about the same time that they were leaving the nest, um, I've been able to kind of see it with them. And I've got one who regularly practices a lot of self-care and wellness. That's just part of her everyday existence. And she is handling everything much better 
than my one who's always had a few extra challenges in that area. Um, her emotional intensity combines with a, a diagnosed anxiety condition. And so she's always mm. had some extra stuff going on. And it it's really impacted her to some degree. She's got a lot of really good skills to draw from, which is great, and some foundational pieces there that she can draw from. But it's been, it's been an interesting thing to watch them. And then every day at school, kind of looking at my gifted population and looking at the degree to which they are have gone from functional to not functional and mm. not coming to school. And if they are at school, really struggling. But the amount of school avoidance has just gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. So it's real yeah. clear to me the need. <laughs> right. The need is hitting home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and On every level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate, you know, preparing for this and reading about you and your, your husband. You characterize basically everybody in your family as gifted. And yeah, again, so are. not only this truth hit home, hits home, but I think that that's a very relatable idea for teachers when you talk about services for, uh, to, to build potential and, and giftedness is that everybody has their person, whether it's a student that they're like, hey, this little so-and-so is, is someone that I'm this is why I do what I do is to build that potential yeah. or they've got a kid at home or they've had a personal experience. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that for you of moving into this world and being so connected with those in your family. It, you know, how did, how did that happen? Oh my goodness. So I, um, growing up, I was that kind of typical gifted kid. So mm. I, um, I played music, I composed a concerto, I read Shakespeare, I wrote stories and plays, and this is all before I was 10. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so at that point, you know, I'm just kind of riding the high of I'm this bright kid and life is great. And we had some traumatic events happen in my early childhood history. And as time went on, I, I'm that kid who tried to hide some of that potential. School was always my refuge. So I was always kind of that geeky, good student who was really determined to get A's. Um, but when I couldn't achieve that or when I had difficulty with that, like I, I was ill prepared on what to do with that. Mm. I didn't I didn't know how to face adversity in that way. And when I went off to college, I graduated college early. I, I kind of, you know, was done with the whole K bachelor experience um, before I hit 21. And then it was kind of that screeching halt of, uh, I don't know what to do with my life now. Like mm. I am really ill prepared for this. And um, I remember finding my way into education quite accidentally and being asked to, uh, you know, would you be interested in teaching some classes on, on parenting gifted kids? We have this grant. We have to teach these classes. And I said, sure. And at that time, I had my youngest, um, hadn't birthed my, my youngest yet. I had birthed my oldest. And um, as I was just kind of exploring that in a self-discovery kind of a way, that's when I realized, oh, I think my husband's got some of these same characteristics. Oh, these are my children too. You know, and then my second one was born, and I can remember sitting at it. At this is just before I wrote emotional intensity and gifted students. I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my mom, and I said, and I remember my mother being a very intense human growing up as well, and I remember sitting there saying, "Mom, do you ever have these moments when you feel like 
you know, bipolar, like a little nuts sometimes. And she laughed and she said, yeah, absolutely. And, and we talked about that some more. And she goes, I'm pretty sure neither one of us are diagnosable for that, but I kind of get what you're saying. And as I explored, I realized this is just a really big feature of being gifted. Mm -hmm. And so I started speaking on the topic and I started talking about it with others. And I started talking to parents of gifted kids. And over and over and over, I would get parents coming up to me after workshop saying, yeah, you talked about my kid, but oh my gosh, that was me. Like I had these epiphany moments of sitting back there. And just the other weekend, as a matter of fact, I did a keynote and I shared quite a bit about my personal story and quite a bit about what it meant to be um, gifted in that road of discovery, of discovering that your emotional intensity isn't a drawback. It's actually your superpower and kind of all of that. And I had audience members crying and wow. they were crying not only from kind of this relief of understanding their kids better, but also from a personal relief of realizing mm. that was me growing up. That was my story, and I didn't know that. Mm. And there's this relief that comes when you start understanding who you are. Absolutely, and I, and I really do feel like that's a common theme within our world within gifted education, mm -hmm. that if you can make that connection to whether, like I said, if it's you or a student you've had or you're or your child, it, it just really increases the value. And I think that message really connects with, with our gifted educators. Um, you talked about your work with parents and you even have a blog, I believe, called Parenting for a New Generation. I do. I have to admit, I've, you know, COVID hit and I got a little lazy with my blog. That's, so I'm a little lazy with my blog, but it's still <laughs> there. They haven't abandoned me. <laughs> They're like, we know you're coming back, Fonseca. But yes, um, working with parents, I think is really, really important. You know, there's no manual for how to raise your kids and there's really no manual for how to raise a gift to kid. And mm. the manuals that are out there, the parenting books that are out there, they don't work well with your own kids. Like, mm. I've read those books too. I've said, yeah, but my kid's blowing up. Like this is not really addressing right. that quite enough. And um, so I really try to connect with parents and help them. I think parents are your are the first best educators for kids and the first best opportunity to grow that emotional side of the house. I know for my husband and I, raising two gifted children, we were always kind of um, dealing with the question of how much enrichment should we be doing? Should we be pushing that IQ more? And we made a very conscious decision early on to really focus on growing their emotional intelligence. And, and really with that recognition of without that emotional intelligence in place, it really doesn't matter what their potential is. They may or may not ever realize it, but if we can raise just good humans, really, really good humans, everything else will fall into place. And that has absolutely proven true. No matter what barriers have come that their way in terms of, of that enrichment piece or that utilization of their IQ piece, they are both really good humans. And it gets reflected in how they kind of approach the world and interact with the world. And I think over the long run, they're both going to achieve some pretty cool things because of that. So I'm, let's camp out on that for a little bit. If we have some parents listening here and uh, they're thinking about their child and, and maybe they have some emotional intensities. Are there some, what, what are some, a couple ideas here to get them rolling of like maybe some sage words of advice, but maybe some ideas of what they can do? Okay, so first and foremost, we need vocabulary to talk about our emotions. And I think that's one of the biggest issues, um, especially when our kids are young. They have no capacity to talk about those emotions in a meaningful way, and therefore they only have one thing left, and that's just to show you what they're thinking and feeling through their behaviors. And um, until that vocabulary gets in place, they're just gonna keep showing you through their 
their behaviors and those behaviors are just going to get more significant. And so that that is the place to start. And whether it's starting with simple vocabulary when they're preschoolers to watching shows together and using some of the fandoms that they're really into and and looking at how characters are responding and asking questions about those characters and really trying to help kids understand that nothing's black or white, right? That we can feel a variety of emotions all coming on at the same time. There's this great scene in the Harry Potter movies when they're talking about one of the characters and they're talking about the emotions that this character is showing and and uh, one of the main characters is saying there's no way somebody can feel all that at the same time and Hermione laughs and she explains that no actually this is the way it works like people mm. do feel the emotions like this that is a beautiful scene things like when kids are younger utilizing shows like Inside Out and really talking about what all the emotions are and that none of these emotions are bad anger is not bad sometimes how we choose to show anger is a little bit problematic but feeling angry at a time that's appropriate to feel angry is not a bad thing. And somehow through um, the research on positive psychology and the way that's all been translated for laymen, we've gotten in, in, into our heads that we're not supposed to feel some of these emotions, that there are sets of emotions that are wrong or bad or not good. And my message is that's no, that, that if we weren't supposed to feel it, we wouldn't feel it, right? Mm. We're supposed to feel a full range of human emotion and we're supposed to be able to express it. Sometimes the way our kids express it is really problematic and it doesn't serve them and it doesn't communicate what it is that they need. And so part of being a parent is helping coach our kids um, in terms of their emotions and coach them into better ways of expressing so that they can get that need met more appropriately. And I love that idea because that's simple. Anybody can enter into that. We're all watching TV with, mm -hmm. with our kids yep. and just sitting back and having a conversation to say, wait a second, let's let's dive deep into that. Yeah, and yeah. Bo both emotional intensity and gifted students, and I'm, I'm working on the third edition that one right now, so I'll be expanding on this idea, as well as the caring child, really go deep into this idea that our everyday conversations, that's where the magic lives. Mm. This isn't about doing something bigger, better, or different. This is about utilizing these moments that we have, whether we're an educator working with a kid or a parent at home working with our own child. We have millions of micro moments in the course of a lifetime with these little individuals um, that we need to utilize better, that we need to not shy away from hard questions, that we need to be able to ask and be so curious about things so that we can enter into authentic conversations with our kids. And through those conversations, that's how you grow good humans. Yeah, I feel like that's an important thing to do is growing good humans for yeah. sure. Um, so going back to something you said earlier, you talked a little bit about as a child, some of the things that you were able to create that uh, were kind of an expression of your potential as you were exploring all that. Um, and I believe you're a fiction writer as well. I am. That's I am. fascinating to me. And, and one of your um, one of the quotes that you had on your website says that fiction uh, explores the more complex aspects of humanity. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about your fiction writing and why it 
is maybe the utility that would kind of explain that that sentiment. So um, I'm not just a fiction writer. I am a dark psychological thriller writer. I'm not Whoa. sure what that all says about me, but you can all kind of imagine what that might say. <laughs> um, and it's really born out of, you know, if, if you've spent any time researching Gifted Ed, you know about the areas of overexcitability or areas of intensity, and one of them is imagination, and I have that in spades. So I can't drive down a road without, like, a million ideas is going in my head of like that aren't particularly great like they're kind of scary ideas sometimes you know <laughs> oh. if I'm driving down a, a foggy road and you know the fog's hugging the ground and there's some I don't know we're going through cornfields or something and I write dark psychological thrillers y'all can fill in the blanks as to what I'm probably thinking in yeah, that moment it writes itself there right yeah. it totally does um, but I write dark psychological thrillers and so when I probably the best example of exploring some d darker deeper elements of humanity when my mom died that was a cataclysmic loss to me. It happened about 12 years ago, and it I can't even tell you what that did to me. I was ill-prepared mm. to deal with that stage of grief. Um, my mother was my first best teacher. She raised me on her own the majority of my lifetime. And um, losing her really felt like a piece of my soul had just gotten carved out. And so I have a very smart fiction writer, friends that I hang out with, who really encouraged me to write through that pain. And so in writing through that pain at that time, I was just starting to form some ideas around a Phantom of the Opera-like horror story. And I wanted to write it in like classic Mary Shelley kind of horror. And I was exploring, you know, what has to go wrong in somebody's brain to make them turn out like Phantom did? Like, yeah. what has to happen in your brain? And so I came up with this character who was a paranoid schizophrenic and didn't know he was a paranoid schizophrenic. And kind of his exploration of figuring out that he was a paranoid, ex, you know, schizophrenic and accepting that. And... Um, I explored grief and I explored pain and I explored anger and I explored madness and that fine line between love and madness that can sometimes exist. And I did these daily writing exercises where I just kind of purged all that big raw emotion that was going on in my life through the eyes of these characters. And I'm very much what I would consider a method writer. And so I embody that character for the period of time that I'm writing about that character. And so that particular book, Transcend, um, yeah, that was a probably the hardest thing I've ever written. I, I rewrote that book about eight times before I ever had the last ending of the book because I, I knew where I wanted to, like I knew what the last page was supposed to be, but getting from one point to the last page was really problematic for me. And so I just kept redrafting the first, <laughs> the first two thirds of the book until I could nail that last part. Um, and then once I nailed it, I had to go back through and make sure it all made sense mm -hmm. then, you know, and, and all the threads worked. Um, but yeah, it, it was a deep exploration, but it's not the only one I've done. You know, other, other books I've done have explored this idea of, you know, when you lie to others or you build a life on lies, what happens when you figure out the truth? Wow. What happens? And, and really the theme in all of them is that search for one's authentic self and figuring out who one is at their core and accepting that no matter what that looks like. So you really are exploring the more concept or more complex aspects of humanity. I really am through this medium, and and I do think that that's something that I I would uh, to take a guess. It, my experience has been that I've I also have things in my life as an educator that I walk with as well. That I feel like a deep exploration, whether it's a a hobby or something mm -hmm. meaningful to you, 
it can really illustrate, I feel like, some of the things you're advocating for mm -hmm. to do with, with kids 100%. to help build that self-regulation with their emotional intensities or whatever. So has that kind of been your experience? Have you had other teachers come and say, like, oh, you working through your fiction writing or, or authoring in general, that parallels what I go through as well. Totally. And I, I would say it does in any creative craft. So my children are both highly creative. My husband's highly creative. And both of our family lines on both sides are just filled with these creative entities. And it's been, um, for us, the outlet to grow that emotional aspect of who we are has been through the creative arts and, and a firm belief that it is through that creative process um, that you can get in touch with all of that kind of stuff. Right, right. You're being that Renzulli creative productive, 100%. right? It's, it's leading to something meaningful. And, yep. um, that's... and whether it's, I'm a fiber artist also, which just means I like to tie knots. That's really all that means. I did not know that. Yeah, and so um, I did it as a little kid, and it was one of those weird things that came back into my life during COVID. My kids are like, hey, Mom, we really like these macrame things. Do you do you have any clue how to make those? I go, well, funny you should ask, but, you know, back in the – I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. Back in the 70s, I did macrame like everybody else I knew. Wow. And they're like, do you think you could make one? And I go, well, it's been like 30 years. Let me figure it out. And I grabbed a piece of yarn, and, you know – 10 minutes later, I handed them a, a, a plant hanger and they went, oh my gosh, you can make it. Can you do like more stuff? And the next thing you know, we have this ridiculous, uh, why? I don't know. We have an Etsy shop where okay. we sell weird things like my macrame or my kids' um, paintings because I have artists, artistic children. And so, yeah, whatever. We, I don't, <laughs> did not need one more thing on my plate. But we do. We have this Etsy shop. So I tie... And what I realized, because I'm older and wiser than I was back in the 70s, right? As I'm making all of these things, whether it's trivets or wall hangings or plant things, whatever, um, it's really a form of mindfulness. I am tying these knots or I'm doing this, you know, really extravagant tapestry wall hanging stuff that I do in, in cross stitching um, as a form of mindfulness. It, mm. It's this repetitive action that we know when you engage in repetitive physical action, you actually release some stuff going on in your nervous system. There's a somatic response and it regulates you. And who knew I was doing that on my own? Wow. Yeah. And, and, and I'm kind of wondering, too, hearing this, if, a, you know, if I'm a teacher and I've got a, a, a little Christine in my classroom, right? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> if I've got that little Christine, what, what, what would you say to that teacher in terms of what to do? And, and what I find, too, is that sometimes when you have a Christine, there's also three or four other Christines in the classroom, mm -hmm. too. So what, what encouragement or advice do you have to that teacher who wants to move into this space as well? Okay, this may sound weird, but first and foremost, stop saying no to kids. Okay. And the reason I say that, so I'm going to tell you a little quick story. I think we have just enough time. Sure. Uh, in third grade, I read Macbeth because, I don't know, it was cool. And if you've ever read Macbeth, that's a really interesting story. And I was determined, because I watched entirely too much Little Rascals around the same time, that my little group of friends, we were going to put on Macbeth, my little third grade group of friends. Now, I'm old. This is before computers. So it's not like I could just you know whip out some scripts. I hand wrote scripts. I passed them out to my friends. And we reenacted scenes from Macbeth during recess. And then I found out from the principal, I think it was, that I had to have a teacher sponsor the event 
okay, well, I was a shy child, really, really super shy. So there was one teacher and one teacher only I was willing to talk to, and that was my teacher. So I asked my teacher, who said no? And <laughs> I had no capacity to ask another teacher. I had no ability to do that. I was entirely too shy. And so there died my dream of putting on Macbeth as the little, you know, third grade group that we were, um, and I didn't do it. And I have example of that throughout my educational career, actually, time and time again. When I was in um, a junior in high school and we were studying U.S. history and I had to write a paper, um, I was writing a term paper and I wanted to explore the impact of political cartoons on voting. Did political cartoons influence voters or did the voting ideology of the time influence political cartoons? Which way did it go? And I had a teacher who said, you will never find research on that, no. And I, to me, that was a challenge. So I had friends at UCLA already. And so I went to the UCLA library and I wrote up an annotated bibliography and I brought it back and I said, can I write my paper now? And he said, no again. And so I have example of this year after year. Every year I have at least one example of this growing up. And my message to teachers is stop saying no when you've got a crazy Christine sitting in your class with some weird, bizarre idea that just sounds off of, you know, out of left field somewhere. Say yes and then figure out how to create a space so they can accomplish that. And I'm willing to bet money they will shock the heck out of you. And they're just going to go do it. Yeah. So when... When we've got a Christine in our classroom, we need maybe methods for inquiry to manifest itself into yeah. meaningful work for the kids. Yep. And if we don't, we might be indirectly sending the message that that work or something you're interested in is not valuable in this classroom. It's not only not valuable, but the fact that you have this crazy idea for meaning at this really young age, which mm -hmm. by the way is 100% typical for a gifted kid, um, that that is not normal, quote unquote, and therefore shouldn't be happening. Mm. And as I mentioned earlier, I don't think there's such a glut of talent on the planet right now and problem solving that's productive on the talent right now that we can afford to lose it. So. And you will lose it. I am a fortunate human in that my life has laid out in such a way that I get to manifest all of those crazy gifts that I had as a kid. That is not true for many, many of our gifted kids. They will grow up and go into other things if they do anything. We have a, a disproportionately high percentage of gifted humans who drop out of school altogether. And not all of them find their way back. Mm-hmm. Man, and, and so finding those times to address that in the work in the classroom could be yep. powerful. Or as a parent, finding yes. those times to invest in building that capacity at home yep. is very important. Yep. Uh, one of your quotes on your website, to, to start to wrap it up here a little bit, is, uh, and I've got some five, fast five questions for you here in a second. <laughs> but uh, one of the quotes on your website that really struck me was, uh, our intense nature fuels our creative passions allowing for greater inspiration, deeper connection, and more meaningful transformation. Tell me a little bit more about what that means. So the fact that as a gifted human, we walk around the planet with these really deep feelings enables us to connect with others in a way that's extremely profound. The simplest of 
of exchanges. I've had simple, meaningful, powerful exchanges with somebody on a, you know, sit next to him on a bus. Um, every bit as much as somebody who I know really, really well. And again, it's those connections. We know that as human beings, connection is everything. It makes the huge difference in how our, how we respond in biochemistry going on in the brain happens when those connections happen. And our intensity gives us a capacity to do that. It also gives us the capacity to see things happening in the world that that perhaps others aren't seeing or at least not as early on and so whether those be good things or bad things or, or be able to be moved I, I remember we were doing I was working with an educational consulting firm and we were doing some strengths-based practices and we were all doing like this you know we did the via strength survey we all did it and we were all like kind of rating ourselves in terms of our signature strengths and one of mine is appreciation of beauty and on and we were asked to give an example of how that comes about and where I live, um, near where I live, are there are a lot of corn uh, cornfields, not cornfields, cow fields, cows, pastures, you know, whatever, and some areas that are, aren't that great in terms of attractive. They're just not. But here I am driving home one day, and there's this gorgeous sunset, and I literally had to stop the car for just a moment, pull over to the side, just to appreciate the beauty mm. of that sunset. And my, I remember my boss laughing and saying, only you, in the middle of this really run-down town, would pull over and say, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Okay, but what a gift, right? right? Being able to appreciate something magnificent in the middle of, of nothing, really. But I'm super interested how you took that moment of beauty and turned it into a dark psychological thriller. Because you know I probably did, because there was probably some maniacs hiding behind a barn somewhere, you know. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so I got some fast five questions. Right. These are designed to be somewhat quick, but also uh, they're going to be, they're, they're, I feel like they're super deep and meaningful. I try to have some fun with it. So. Okay. All right. You got a Saturday to do anything. What do you do and why? Ooh, a Saturday to do anything and what do I do and why? Okay, honestly, I probably, um, this is going to sound so boring and mundane, I probably binge watch my favorite show because I am huge media freak and I love <laughs> all, I consume way too much media, so yeah. I'm sure that's what I do. That's okay. That's I think that's a very relatable thing. <laughs> I think we're Me and Netflix, that. we're like this. That's right. All right, if you had to describe yourself as a cartoon character or a TV show character, who would it be and why? Wonder Woman. Well, that was quick. Very <laughs> she quick. is, oh, dude, Wonder Woman is yeah. the bomb. She is all that I wish I was, probably. <laughs> but yeah, Wonder Woman, because, you know, it's Wonder Woman. Like, she's super confused by humanity all the time mm. and can't understand why they're so messed up. I spend half my time thinking the same thing, but she's determined to help them anyways. Because wow. somehow they're still salvageable, right? Mm -hmm. She's the best. You really brought a lot of depth to that response. I appreciate that. <laughs> I love Wonder Woman. She's my girl. If you could tell, question three, if you could tell an earlier version of yourself one thing about how you learn, what would you tell them? I would say to take risks. Actually, if I had to tell my younger self anything, it's that it's okay to take risks and to stop being so scared. Mm. You talked about being shy earlier. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that could have had... An impact. Or, yeah, I'm yeah. sure. I'm sure it did. I, yeah, I, you know, I, like I said, I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of trauma in my upbringing. And I think as a result of that, I didn't want to do anything to cause my mom any pain or friction mm -hmm. or, or discomfort. And so grades 
it seemed to me. Like, I had a lot of control over that. And so if I just kept bringing home straight A's, she always liked straight A's. If I just kept bringing those home, that'd be a good thing. But I lost out on that ability to take an academic risk, and it took a long time for me to learn how to do that. Hmm. Who has been an inspiration, this is question four, in your educational career? Okay, so just like I've had the teachers that I remember who said no, I have the teachers I remember who encouraged me and said yes as well. So I remember distinctly a uh, teacher, we read uh, The White Company by Sir Arthur Cannon Doyle, and I just remember reading that in her class, and I remember her being a scuba diver, and at that time I wanted to be a marine biologist, and I, she went diving in Catalina, an island off the coast in California, and brought me back the most gorgeous of shells, which started a collection that I used to keep of shells, and I only kept shells that had a lot of meaning, which I then passed on to students when I started working in schools. That's amazing. Uh, if you had to tell teachers to do one thing to develop student potential, what would it be? Teach them how to take a risk and teach them how to fail and make them fail. Best teachers I've ever seen. My daughters both had the same teacher for fourth grade, and um, she was fantastic. She started every school year telling them how her professor in grad school was a student of Einstein's, therefore all of them were now students of Einstein's through, you know, through working it all down, uh, which is super cool and encouraging for any student sitting in her class. And then she worked the heck out of them and held them to exacting standards. And both of my kids had an opportunity to not pass muster with her, to have a little bit of failure with her, just a hint of it, which then gave them permission to take risks from then on out. Well, I really appreciate you being here today. Uh, Speaking about soaking up media, how can uh, everybody out there find you on social media and maybe connect with you? So website's probably the best place, although I'm in the middle of redoing it. So yeah, still contact me through my website. That's probably the best way. Otherwise, you can find me on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm still on Twitter. We'll see how long that lasts. I don't know. So. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we're so glad you're here today. Thank you so much to our guest today, Christine Fonseca. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guest and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting txgifted.org and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at RanzuliLearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12, and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.